Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Christian Ashelman, and this is the podcast where we chat a bit about our psychohuman brains, a little about our loony human behavior, and a lot about how it all fits together. Let's start off as we always do by thanking you for taking the time to get involved, to ask questions, and to wonder just a bit about this piece of meat up in your head. Thank you. If you know someone who you think might enjoy Bed Letter, please feel free to share the podcast, and if you are interested in signing up for the monthly newsletter or in joining the Bed Letter Community Discord server, head to cashleman.com. That's C-A-S-H-L-I-M-A-N.com. On my website, I've got a blog that I write on, as well as information on editing, tutoring, and mentoring services that I offer. If you want to help to support the show in an additional way, I also have a Patreon page, and if something in the show sparks a question or a comment and you want to share, head to my blog, our community Discord server, or to my Instagram page, at C. Ashleman. Those are all fantastic places to share your thoughts. If you are interested in obtaining a copy of Richard Nisbet's book, you can do so by clicking the link in the description or by heading over to Amazon and searching his name. He's got several other fantastic books to check out there as well. I hope you enjoy the first part of our conversation today as we discuss reasoning errors and mentor relationships. Today we are meeting with esteemed psychologist Professor Richard E. Nisbet, the Theodore M. Newcomb Distinguished University Professor and was the co-director of the Culture and Cognition Program at the University of Michigan and is now retired, as well as the author of the newly released book, Thinking, a memoir discussing how people reason and make inferences about the world, how flaws in reasoning occur, and how much you can improve your reasoning. And that is exactly why we are here today to discuss this fantastic new book. So, Richard, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's seriously a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, um, so let's just dive straight into it. Your new book is all about how us humans reason and how we make all sorts of messy errors when we do that reasoning. Um, I believe that you have done a fantastic job in linking together all of the different reasoning and inference research here. What is it about reasoning specifically that intrigues you so much? What pulled you into uh, this part of the field? Well, the, the first thing that uh, led to an awful lot of research uh, was a study I did, one of the first couple of studies I did in graduate school. Um, my advisor was Stanley Schachter, and um, he had been doing research showing that uh, emotion is uh, predicted by your understanding of your situation that gives you the cognitions appropriate to emotion, and by autonomic arousal, which gives it oomph. This was called the jukebox theory of emotion. Mm -hmm. uh, the cognition is the the, the uh, selection on the uh, jukebox and the uh, oomph is given by the quarter that sets the whole thing off. <clears throat> um, and he was, he had done some research indicating that uh, people don't have a clear idea of what is causing uh, their autonomic arousal. Autonomic arousal is, um, consists of, you know, the heart rate increases and breathing becomes irregular uh people may temperature may increase uh you may feel your uh, blood pressure increasing uh and so on um and so we decided to test that uh by 
putting people in a situation where they're getting electric shock and we're telling we're, we're interested in the effects of a particular drug called suproxen uh, on, uh, on pain. Uh, and uh, we want them to tell us the, the electrodes are attached to their fingers. And we want them to tell us uh, when they can first feel the shock, when it first becomes painful, and when it becomes too painful to tolerate. But they've all been given a pill, uh, which is a placebo pill. And some people are told, essentially, that it will cause arousal, as you may find your heart rate increasing, you may find your breathing becoming irregular, uh, you may get a sort of uh, funny feeling in the pit of your stomach. And other people are told a bunch of symptoms like headache and itching that are not caused by any pill, certainly not by our placebo. Uh, and so we give the steadily increasing shock and people up to the point where people can't take it anymore. And then sure enough, astonishingly, the people who've been told that the pill will cause arousal take four times as much shock. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. Yeah. So uh, obviously what's happened is that they, they feel the arousal, but instead of the arousal, you know, making them upset and making the, the, the pain worse, uh, they say, oh, oh, well, yeah, well, I'm worked up here, but oh, that's the pill. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I would tell people who had been in the experimental condition who got the, the arousal instructions, I would say, Jen, you, you took quite a bit of shock. I wonder why that is. And they'd say, oh, well, you know, I used to build radios and, I, you know, I guess, you know. I got Just come up with something. <laughs> That's right. Come up with something. Yeah. I mean, and so I said, well, yeah, I'm, you know, I can see that. Um, and I would keep questioning. And finally, almost no one mentioned the shock as at all in any context. And finally, I would say, well, look, here's the theory. I, I told you to get these symptoms from the pill. And um, and that and I figured that you would as you're getting the shock you're getting more aroused but then you remember oh yeah I took this pill and so this bothered you less and you could take more shock and people say well you know oh yeah sure that that sounds reasonable I bet that was true for a lot of people but you see I used to work with radios and I got sh shocks and so okay so. Here's people going through a slightly complicated form of reasoning, and there's no recognition of it at all. And then I began to, uh, <laughs> I started doing some very interesting reading, one by um, a book named, uh, by a man named Lakatosh um, on um, uh, what he called, uh, well, we would call it today, implicit uh, cognition, that is, cognition that goes on beneath consciousness, you're just not mm -hmm. aware of it. And that accounts for a huge amount of our reasoning. We're, we're responding to stimuli, putting them together in some way, coming out with some kind of a response. We know what some of the things that are in our heads, but we can't observe thinking process at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was That was the the, the notion I formed at that point. And then, uh, you know, 10 years or so after graduate school, I started looking at it in a very systematic way. Yeah. Uh, so. Interesting. I, I, I think that's, uh, that 
seeing that uh that relationship and and the fact that they had no ability or just no they weren't they never almost attributed it to the to the to the shock or anything like that is is fascinating and so that you'd say that was kind of like the thing that sparked your your interest into well what's going on with this these whole reasoning processes and and why why is this happening is that kind of what sparked your your interest that's it and especially the unconscious aspect the fact that we're reasoning and we don't know we're yeah 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 that's definitely one of the parts i find most interesting is just how almost detached we are from it from the unconscious process there but how much of a role it still plays in what we're doing every day so um another question i have is uh in the symbiosis chapter of your book you talk a lot about how important the advisor and advisee relationship is Uh, In one paragraph, you wrote, The student learns the ropes in the only way that is really possible, by watching firsthand how good science gets done. The advisor gets someone to hew the wood and carry the water. If the student is good, the advisor also gets uh, a useful critic and an extra brain in the bargain. I think that this is a really important point, and not just for those in university right now. Uh, To you, having been on both sides of the equation, both being an advisor and an advisee, um, how... How has this relationship been important to your success in the field overall? Well, there's just no question. I mean, by accident, I got (laughs) the best possible person to study social psychology with Stanley Schachter. And uh, I don't think I knew when I started graduate school that the, the center of all of this, the crucial thing was working with this guy who knew how to do the business very well. It's not obvious. That, I mean, so you read an article and you say, oh, I see, they did this and they did that and they found this and they found that. And it, it sounds pretty straightforward. That won't teach you how to do psychology. And it probably won't teach you how to do most things in life. I mean, it's, it's you need... Um, you know, if, there's, if it's at all complicated, uh, you need to be able to work shoulder to shoulder with somebody who who knows how to do the thing. There's this very recently, social psychology uh, was initially basically a German uh, activity. Uh, it was uh, the founder of the field of social psychology was a man named Kurt Lewin. Uh, one of the very most brilliant uh, uh, early practitioners was Fritz Heider. And um, social psychology, this will take me a long path to explain why, but social psychology as it's practiced today isn't a very likely outcome out of uh, the intellectual tradition and psychology in the U.S., which was much more oriented toward behaviorism rather than thinking figuring out how it is that people think. And then I happened to notice, my God, Germany has produced almost no good social psychology in the last, well, since World War II. Uh, and it's a, on the face of it, it's surprising because lots of very smart people have studied psychology in Germany mm-hmm. uh, since that time. What was missing was the mentor. Somebody show them show them how to do the business. Uh, and I said this recently to a physicist who said, oh, it's exactly the same thing in physics. I mean, 
German physics was absolutely tops in 1930. I mean, no, there was no second place. I yeah. Mean, it was all German. And after, since the war, nothing. Um, so again, you know, they, they get lots of education. They're as smart as they ever were. They just don't know how to do the business. Mm-hmm. Now they're learning in psychology. You, I'd say 10 or 15 years ago, you begin to find, you know, a few people who are doing good research. But the point is it's, it's mentorship is just everything. Absolutely. I think uh, when I think about this, it's, it's interesting because I think it's one thing that I, going through school, I, I feel like I didn't take, uh, take that into account as much as I should have. It wasn't until my like last year in school where I really started to speak with my advisors more and, and kind of form that relationship. And my, my last year in school was my most easily my most impactful year. I learned so much from, I like to write a lot. It's like, if I didn't get a degree in psychology, I always say I would have gotten a degree in, um, I don't know about creative writing, but some, some kind of writing or, or linguistics or English or something and editing and, and allowing somebody who's better at writing than you or who you see as better at writing than you and allowing oh, yeah. them to edit oh, your yeah. writing is huge. That's and right. So, it's, a, it's enormous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just kind of paired those things together a lot as I was reading your book. I just realized how important that, um, kind of having the, the master teach the novice and the journeyman and, and how that all works out. Um, and it, it appears to me that it's just a, a crucial part of, of, of your, you know, come up and into psychology and stuff for sure. Right. Well, actually about the, the point about writing, one thing that's amazed me uh, in, uh, teaching psychology and having people do research with me the first um this is less true now people get a lot of training in undergraduate school when i was when i started i i got really nothing but uh now they've they've, typically they've even done some writing uh in psychology uh before they get to graduate school but uh until fairly recently that wasn't really true Mm -hmm. and the first article that they wrote was terrible almost always (laughs) i mean and you know uh, you i'd take it apart and uh say you know i don't know let's let's see whether this guy can do it or not and the second paper was always enormously better i mean so the the learning experience for just getting one critique one very serious critique can make a huge difference, uh, which was a uh, surprise and, and very encouraging. <laughs> yeah, uh, that I think it's huge. I, t- I remember I took a I took a poetry class, and every day of that class through the whole semester, it was bring something that you've written to class and have somebody basically just pick it apart and and you know and not destroy it, but just come up with a whole lot of you know where you could take it, what you could do with it, and. Right. Almost, it was almost like at, at the beginning of the class, I remember taking all of the criticism and feedback. I wasn't very good at it. Um, I would, you know, I sometimes I'd like to think, oh, I did, I made this and I made it right the first time, you know, yeah. but uh, that was definitely almost never the case. And right. it was just, it almost was a habit thing. I needed to, I needed to have my stuff be looked at and critiqued a lot so I could get used to taking that criticism for sure. Right. Exactly. Oh, it's interesting about poetry. And I never, I always did a lot of reading before I got to college, but no poetry. I mean, zip, none. Mm -hmm. 
And in college, uh, I took a couple of English courses. I mean, it's interesting. You say if you weren't a psychologist, you would have been a writer. Well, I, I, that's the same for me. English was my, <laughs> was my minor. Oh, nice. And I loved the poetry that I read in college. And I got out of college and I never read another line of poetry. <laughs> and I don't know why. I mean, I, I knew, you know, I'm capable of loving poetry, but it was not. And then very recently, after retirement, I took a class in poetry from a teacher who was just a fantastic teacher. And I loved it. I mean, it was just wonderful. Uh, and since that class, I have not read a line of poetry. <laughs> I mean, it's like you. If you force me, I can love it. If you don't force me, <laughs> I won't do it. Yeah. No, that's how it is. Sometimes you just got to be in the right, you know, environment or something and something clicks. I don't know. That's interesting to say the least for sure. Ladies and gents, that is all the time we have for today. But if you have enjoyed listening to this episode, be sure to follow Bedletter on your preferred platform. Also, be sure to tune in for the next episode where Richard and myself will continue our conversation diving further into his book. Remember that you can add your name to the monthly newsletter list, join the community Discord server, and more over on my website, cashlin.com. And if you're interested in supporting the show in an additional way, I also have a Patreon page with some pretty cool donation benefits. If anything from today's episode sparked a thought, please feel free to share that either in the Discord, in the comments section on my blog, or on my Instagram page, at cashlin. Thank you so much for tuning in and joining me for today's episode. I hope you have an awesome week, and I'll see you next time on Bed Letter. Bed Letter.